also want to draw attention, if you're on our email list, you know that we are now rating our sermons as we go through First um, Corinthians. This one was rated PG um, for reasons that will be obvious to you shortly. Uh, the rating system that I'm proposing is really uh, this one. It's called PO uh, for Parental Opportunity. Um, I, I can't think of a better opportunity for, for parents to encounter sensitive issues than when they are taught from the Word of God by the church. Okay. Um, I, I, just, I just think that's probably one of the best opportunities you have as a parent. And I know that some of you prefer on issues such as the ones we've been tackling, like prostitution last week, may choose to wait to broach those subjects until your children are older, like, say, 35. Um, I understand that, but here's what I want you to... I do want you to be careful and make sure that you are doing that for the good of your children and not for your own comfort. That it's not just because you don't want to talk about this with your child, that you are screening them from the teaching of the Word on these subjects. Um, So just make sure that your motives are good with that. Um, Because chances are your kids are going to hear these things elsewhere before you are ready to tell them. This may be your best opportunity to introduce them to these subjects in a God-honoring way. Um, I hope, though, that we'll we'll try to send out a warning system with our, our ratings attached uh, when I can figure out that, that it might be appropriate. Um, but it's hard. I mean, we deal with things like crucifixion. My gosh. If there's anything that it needs to have some kind of rating on, it's probably that. Um, and we talk about that a lot. So it's difficult to know exactly when we need to do that, but I'll try to do that for you. Uh, we, we, we'll use the PO system. My hope is that it will keep you from being PO'd at me. Um, <laughs> so, having said all that, today... We are um, continuing today in our series in 1 Corinthians, which at this point has to feel like our series on sexual dysfunction. Um, We've talked about incest, prostitution, and today, abstinence. And you're thinking, wait, 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 abstinence is a good thing. It's not a good thing in marriage, okay? And in, in the way that only the Corinthian church seems to have been able to do it, uh, there were some in the church that were advocating as a, as a spiritually acceptable pattern um, abstinence in marriage. So if you, wanna, uh, if, you, if you don't believe me, open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that um, in that passage this morning. And uh, as we do that, let's pray. Lord, we, we welcome you into our minds and our, our souls to direct us, to heal us, and to bring good grace to us through the teaching of your word now. Father, guard and guide my words. Um, grant us all ears to hear in a way that, that changes us and brings to us the joy that you are offering us in this manner. We, we ask this in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, first verse, and I'm not using any, I'm using a conglomerate of translations today, so if it doesn't match up with yours, um, sorry, just 
Trust me, I got it from a legitimate source, mostly the NIV and the New American Standard. Paul begins by saying, now for the matters you wrote about, the Corinthian church was corresponding with Paul, and they had written some questions or some assertions. What they said was, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, This is not, not about a handshake or a hug. This is a euphemism for sex. They were saying, it's good for a man not to have sex. And evidently, um, some of your Bibles will say it's good for a man not to marry. That's probably not the best way to render that, as I understand it. Better to see it as sexual relations. Now, for a variety of reasons, there were evidently some in the Corinthian church who were contending that you should abstain from sex, even in marriage, that this was the spiritual thing to do. So, in chapter 6, some of them are saying... Visiting prostitutes is okay. And now in chapter 7, some are saying sex in marriage is to be shunned. This is one befuddled church sexually. Okay? They are all over the map um, except, it, it seems, where they need to be. Now, as far as I know, um, there's no one in our church advocating abstinence within marriage because of a twisted up theology. There are no doctrinal Corinthians amongst us in this matter. However, it does not mean that there are not some practical Corinthians among us in this matter. And uh, this will give you some idea, I hope, of the shape that that might take. No. 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 No, no, no. 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 No! One one pastor, it's reported, has overheard a non-Christian describe Christians as people who say no to everything and go to a lot of meetings. Um, That ought not be our great legacy. And as you're going to see today, that ought not be our legacy, especially... In our bedrooms, Paul is responding to their contention about abstinence in marriage in the verses that follow, Uh, starting in verses 2 and 3. He says, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So the language is, um, is careful and guarded here. What does this mean? It means what every husband hopes that it means. That's what it means. Um, to have his own wife does not mean you should go out and get one. It is, once again, a way of saying he should have his own wife. That is, he should have sexual relations with his wife and likewise the wife with her husband. 
So too the expression, fulfill his marital duty, is yet another careful way of speaking about um, the practice of sexual relations within marriage. Now, some of the men in the congregation are paying more rapt attention to this sermon at this point in time than any sermon you have ever heard in your life. They are, honey, do you have a pen? Where, where is this in the Bible? Um, I think I just found my life verse. First Corinthians. Um, you should notice, though, that God, through Paul, is commanding. It's a command to married spouses to have sex. God is decidedly pro-sex within marriage. And here in 1 Corinthians 7, God is commanding both husband and wife that they should have sex. They are to fulfill their marital duty. And the idea there is that they are supposed to make payment of what is due. For sure, there is language of obligation here. But fulfillment of duty, often within marriage, and definitely in this case, is the shape of love. According to 1 Corinthians 13, love is not self-seeking. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sexual relations in marriage is one of the duties that love requires, Paul is saying. And there is a great mutuality of Paul's teaching here. It is husband to wife and wife to husband. This duty of love is intended to be radically mutual, as we're about to see in in verse 4. The wife, he says, does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. I like the way Pastor Keith Krell put it in his sermon on this passage. He says, God sovereignly takes something away at the point of marriage and gives it as a heavenly wedding present to your spouse. The Lord doesn't ask you if he can take it, and the Lord doesn't ask you if you want it. Sovereignly, the Lord takes the authority you have had over your own body as a single individual and removes it from you for as long as you live. Authority in this passage literally means to have rights or exclusive claim to something. And then he says, in uncomplicated terms, God gave my body to my wife when I wed, and I have absolutely nothing to say about it. Vice versa could be said as well. See, this is the shape of love within a marriage. Marital sex, as God designed it, is a mutual, glad, yielding in love of our bodies for our spouse's pleasure. It is a mutual, glad, yielding in love of our bodies to our spouse's for their pleasure. It is the application of that great relational principle uh, for all believers, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, 
to the bedroom. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is applying that principle to marriage, specifically to the bedroom. Marital sex, as God designed it, is a mutual glad, yielding in love of our bodies to our spouses for their pleasure. And again, note the mutuality of it. The wife yields authority of her body to her husband, and her husband yields authority of his body to his wife. Now, it's important to realize that with intentionality... Paul is talking exclusively about yielding, not about demanding. Nothing is said about your right to demand anything. He is talking about the requirement that God has placed upon you to yield, to offer. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 precludes any demanding in the life of the Christian and in their marriages. Gordon Fee has wisely pointed out that it is not you owe me, rather it is I owe you what Paul is saying here. He continues in verse 5 in our passage. He says, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you Because of your lack of self-control. So no depriving. Another command. The the idea is that of defrauding or cheating your spouse out of what's properly theirs. Um, Now, if there were a group of Christians who ever had a really bad reputation for their happy participation in things sexual, it's the Puritans. Um, Long ago, um, they supposedly had no space for this pleasure in their world. H.L. Mencken, a 20th century journalist, said that Puritanism was the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. But this was not the case with the Puritans at all, um, especially in matters with respect to marital sex. There's actually actually a guy in the first church of Boston. His name was James Maddock. He was excommunicated from the church because he withheld conjugal rights from his bride for two years. They disciplined him. Um, And just so you'll know, no, our elders don't have a way to track this. And no, we have never disciplined anyone for that. Um, I suppose we could um, because uh, it is a command. Um, We could could discipline, we couldn't track. Just let me be clear. We could discipline, we couldn't track. But without question, this is a command of God for those who are married. Paul has said it positively, and now he said it negatively. Um, He also says uh, that there is an exception. And the exception uh, to full, glad, mutual availability to one another in this area um, is marked by three things. He says, uh, must be mutual consent. Okay? You must agree to abstain. 
it must be for a limited time. And he says it must be, as he teaches the Corinthians, in order to devote yourselves to prayer. So you see, this is a very narrow exception, but I can imagine at this point, some of you guys are doing the math, and you're thinking, I'm I'm okay with this. I'm good with this. I mean, how long can a guy devote to prayer? Like five minutes? I'm good. I can can abstain for that long. That's a reasonable exception. Um, I think Paul's talking about something much longer than that. What, What this teaches us, kind of in a backhanded way, is that the early church evidently commonly devoted extended times to prayer. That either individually or as couples or or together as a church family, extended times of prayer were a high priority for the early church. Um, You can begin to train in this discipline the first Sunday of each month. First Sunday night in June, we gather in this room at 6 o'clock for an extended time of prayer. About an hour to an hour and a half of prayer. It is the the best way that I know for you to begin to train in this vital practice. There are far too few of us who could qualify for this exception. Because it is not our pattern um, to be devoted to prayer in this way. Now, is this the only exception that could ever come up? Uh, I I doubt it. Um, I mean, obviously, you think immediately of travel or illness. There there surely might be others. But in Paul's mind, I suppose we could say the only thing more important than sex is prayer as he talks to the Corinthian church. Um, He establishes that priority. He is warning them, though, that following a time where they are not together as husband and wife in this way. Um, they should come together again following that. They should. Again, this is, this is the language of sexual union. They should come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Don't, don't miss this. Satan is attacking marriages in this area. Pastor John Piper tells the story of the experience of one of his members on an airline flight. The person sitting next to this individual turned down a meal. And so they asked them why. Uh, and he said, I am fasting and praying. And when asked what he was praying for, he says, I am praying to Satan for the destruction of ministers' marriages. Paul is warning us that Satan is targeting all Christian marriages in this area. He is targeting you. And Paul is saying that by our faithfulness to this good command from our God, we help thwart his efforts. Paul goes on and says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul is saying that this exception to regular mutually satisfying sexual expression in marriage is a concession. 
It's not a command. He's talking about those rare times when a husband and wife should not be available to each other. He says that's a concession. That's not a command. And Paul writes here as one who is presently single. He greatly appreciates his gift as a single man um, such that he wishes everyone could share on it. We'll talk more about singleness in the weeks uh, that are coming. But he also sees here marriage as that other good gift that God gives, not only for our pleasure, but also for our protection. Um, he says in verses 8 and 9, he begins now to invest, to address specific groups within the church. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried. And he's going to explain that statement later. As I am. So Paul is evidently single at this point. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is now giving advice to the unmarried and to widows. Um, many think that un- the unmarried reference here is to widowers. That he may be specifically addressing widows and widowers in this point, of which it's possible that we don't know for sure that Paul was one. He himself may have been a widower, and he is urging them to remain in their present state. And again, we'll unfold the, the reasons for that in the weeks to come, hopefully. But he says, if they struggle with sexual temptation and find themselves falling into sin, he advocates marriage as a God-given protection against this great temptation. And so while Paul may here have specifically widows and widowers in view, um, his counsel to them would seem wise to all who are single. That marriage may well be part of God's protection and provision for you if this is an area of great temptation and struggle for you. Now, getting married is obviously not the only provision that God has made to fight against sexual temptation, nor is being sexually tempted the only qualification that you need to get married. But if this struggle describes you, and you believe that God does have marriage in your future, you ought to be getting ready to be married. You ought to be preparing for marriage by becoming, in your character, the kind of man or woman that God calls us to be in marriage. You know, a Proverbs 31 kind of woman, a Psalm 112 kind of man. If you're struggling sexually as a single, then marriage is likely part of God's good provision for you, Paul is saying. You should be earnestly preparing for it and not prolonging adolescent irresponsibilities into your 20s and your 30s and beyond. Get a mentor and get after Jesus if you hope to be married one day. Paul here is presenting marriage with its sexual privileges and responsibilities as a safeguard against sexual immorality. This is really how he started this whole conversation on this, back in verse 2. Since there is so much immorality, he said, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Because there's so much sexual immorality, so much sexual temptation. And in a world that has lost its way sexually in a spiritual battle that is targeting your spouse 
in the area of sexual immorality, God has equipped and commanded you to help protect your spouse by your glad, yielding in love of your body to your spouse for their pleasure and their protection. Now, you will never be held responsible for your spouse's sexual sin. However, you can help protect them from it. Just as we are to yield but not demand, so too you can protect, but you are not responsible. But this is what love does. Again, this is the shape of love, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Love always protects. As one writer put it, make sure your marriage bed is so hot that your husband or wife will never go looking elsewhere. Paul would sound a great amen to that. That is what he is calling us to. Now, how does all this actually work? Well, it works marvelously. Okay. Um, yeah, consider this hypothetical scenario. Amorous husband encounters exhausted wife and mother of, say, five kids. Uh, a purely hypothetical situation that no one in this room has ever encountered. Okay. What's the husband to do? Quote your life verse, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. Um, No. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 comes into play. She is more important. Her needs matter more. Your needs matter less. And I am stretching to call your amorousness a need. This kind of bold love that Paul is calling us to express that yields your body to your wife does not begin in the bedroom, men. It begins with your time and with your conversation. There's a study done. You know how often married women ages 25 to 50 with two or more children get a date night? One in 20 gets a date a week. One in four gets one a month. One in three gets one seven months or less, one every seven months or less. The Bible does not decree date nights, but your wife may, and you should yield in love for her pleasure and protection. So what's the exhausted wife and mother to do in our purely hypothetical scenario? Claim a headache? Um, See, The scriptures we are talking about today would press upon you and you would yield in love your body to your husband for his pleasure and protection. Is being unavailable an exceptional response for you? Are you falling into the pattern of simply being too tired or uninterested? Listen to these wise words from uh, Betsy Ricucci from their helpful book, Love That Lasts. 
She's writing to wives, and she says, Ladies, when your husband initiates lovemaking, what's on the line is nothing less than his heart, his leadership, and his perception of your respect for him. Consistent refusal and rejection could tempt him in ways you might never imagine. Remember this the next time you are not in the mood. Instead of looking at your own circumstances, look at God's grace and mercy in his word and pray and cry out to God for help and grace to serve your husband. It is vital that we remember that what we're talking about today is a command from a good and loving heavenly Father. It is for our good and for His glory. Writer Ben Patterson adds this helpful thought. He says, There's one more thing to be said about the goodness of sex and the glory of God. Thank you. He says, Sex is good because the God who created sex is good. And God is glorified greatly when we receive his gift with thanksgiving and enjoy it the way he meant for it to be enjoyed. Gratitude may be the greatest joy of sex. And what brings the greatest glory to God because joy is what you experience when you are grateful for the grace that has been given you. So, my hope is this morning that these verses taken from the Bible, believe it or not, will be a great encouragement to those of you who are married. As Pastor Mark Driscoll put it, tonight we're going to put the fun back in fundamentalism. (laughs) But having said that, I realize that for far too many of you here today, um, this area of your marriage is anything but fun. Um, That you have been perhaps at a very young and defenseless age, victimized by the evil twisting of this good gift, which has happened too far often in families, in our culture. What Paul is writing and what you have experienced seem worlds apart. And so, for you, I would just like for you to listen to these wise words from counselor and author David Paulison. Listen closely. These words he wrote for you. He says, To those for whom sexual experience has resulted in unholy pain, Christ says, I understand well your experience. I hear the cry of the needy, afflicted, and broken. Come to me. I am your refuge. I am safe. I will remake what is broken. I will give you reason to trust and then to love. I will remake your joy. Jesus Christ calls us all out of fantasy, delusion, and lust. Whether the fantasy land is filled with naked bodies or with romantic nights, Jesus Christ is about the reality business. Francis of Assisi got things straight. Grant that I would not so much seek to be loved, as to love. Jesus teaches us how to be committed, patient, kind, protective, able to make peace, keeping no record of wrongs, merciful, forgiving, generous, and all the other hard, wonderful characteristics of grace. 
He teaches us to consider the true interests of others. He teaches us a positive, loving purity that protects the purity of others. One person may need to learn that sex is good, not dirty. That you can relax rather than tense up. You can give yourself freely rather than worry about what will happen to you. Pleasure will not betray you. Your spouse is faithful and can be trusted. Only larger, deeper, fundamental trust in God can free us to grant simple trust and generous love to another human being who will in fact let us down and do us wrong in some ways. Still other marriages may need to give up evil relational patterns, game playing, manipulation, give to get, avoidance, bartering sex for other goodies, sulking. Still other people must sever the link that equated sex with success or failure or performance and identity. As Christ redefines and recenters your identity, he changes what sex means. Sex can become a simple and meaningful way to give. It can be a simple pleasure, as normal as eating breakfast. It can become a safe place where failures and struggles can be talked about and prayed through. Marital sex, as God designed it, is a mutual, glad, yielding in love of our bodies to our spouses for their pleasure, their protection, for the glory of God, and your greater joy. May this increasingly be your experience of this good gift from your loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Father, these are um, sensitive and private and embarrassing and um, difficult matters for us. But on the other hand, they are so good and so kind and so needed in our day. May your word bring grace to every marriage in this room and to every marriage partner who is waiting to be married in this room. May the beauty of this gift bring great joy and protection to every marriage in this room. May great delight be found in our obedience to your word this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.